The first reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the reading. Yes, this uh, Bible reading is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Who is going to harm you? Oh, I'm sorry, if it's on page 1272 of the Pew Bible. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities 
and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Jean. Well, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you give us understanding of your word and help us to apply it in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, good morning once again. We're going to look at God's Word this morning. It's a great privilege. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity for us to study uh, this passage of Scripture this morning. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. I'm sure, friends, this, uh, this past week, you and I would have been wondering for ourselves what is going on in this world. Are we confronted with uh, violence? Bombings, killings, sadness, and tragedy. The Boston bombings, the explosion in Texas, and the ongoing conflict uh, in the Middle East, the earthquake in China, uh, we hear of people being stabbed, uh, killings. What's going on in this world? How do we as Christians respond to situations like this? in the world that we live in? Is there someone who is in control of the world? Is there someone ruling this world? If there is a God, why doesn't he intervene, people say, and stop these kind of things taking place in the world that we live in? Another question for us this morning, what does it take to live a Christian life in a hostile world? How do we live as Christians in this world? I'm sure that many of us have asked ourselves this question repeatedly. When we see so much suffering around us, so much grief, sorrow and sadness. And particularly when we hear of Christians in many parts of the world who are suffering because they love and serve Jesus Christ. There are many believers today who are suffering tremendously on account of their faith in Christ. Many have been killed and are being killed today because they follow Jesus Christ, yeah? In many parts of the world. Why? Where is God? Well, this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 to 22. And the topic today is, Be encouraged, Jesus rules. Be encouraged, Jesus rules. And in our morning services, we've been following the book of 1 Peter. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 3, 17 to 22, and there are three points. We look at the suffering, we look at the spirits that Jesus preached to, and the symbolism that we have in the passage as well. Well, let's have a look at the suffering. In verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What does this mean? The suffering that is in view here in verse 17 is not some kind of generic suffering such as an incurable sickness, a cancer, or the death of a loved one. Though that is real. The suffering in the context here in 1 Peter is the suffering because of persecution. It is suffering due to opposition, for being a Christian. It is suffering for doing what is good rather than what is evil. So it is better 
Peter says, if it is God's will to suffer doing what is right, then for doing what is wrong. Now, I don't think that it is God's will that Christians should suffer. I don't think so. The text in my view is clear, and that is that God does not will that so-and-so should be suffering. Rather, the passage tells us that God wills for us to suffer for doing good. And I'll explain that in a moment. By doing good, it means right living. It means living the Christian life in this world. By doing good, it means taking a stance for Jesus. It means living out the gospel in this world and doing what is right. It means that we are called to a higher ethical standard in our lives, right? As Christians, to live this in this world. So understanding God's will in such a context assures us that God is in control of the situation. For example, if we go through suffering for doing what is right. The point is that God wills for us to do what is right and not what is wrong. Now, there are people who have to suffer for doing what is right. Let me give you a couple of examples. You might have to pay the price for doing what is right. Okay? You may lose friends. Perhaps your friends are pressurizing you to do things that are not right. A peer pressure. Now, come on, young people and older people as well. Peer pressure is huge, right? Or is it not? When your friends, for example, put the pressure on you, come on, you can do it, you can do it, and push you to do things that you know in your heart you don't want to do. But because of the pressure that is so big, you think, oh, I better do this thing so that I'm part of the group. Right? Because if I don't do it, I will be ostracized. I will be pushed out of the inner circle. I will be looked upon as, oh, that's a quirky person. Have nothing to do with him or her. And the pressure is on. It begins in the school. And it grows goes right up, doesn't it? And the pressure keeps on compounding as teenagers and your friends are pushing you to. For example, you're driving with your teenage friends. Your pee plates are on there. And your friends are edging you on. Come on, go, go, press that pedal fast. Hit the speed, 110, 120. Keep going, you can do it. You're sitting there and no, I can't, I can't. No, but your friends are pushing you. Oh, so I'll go. You can say that, right? It can happen. But you don't want to do it because you're a Christian. And you say, no, guys, this is wrong. I don't want to do it. I want to take a stance against it. I'm not participating in the pressures that you're putting upon me. And that's going to be hard. What about in the workplace? I knew of a particular situation of a, of a Christian man who held an excellent position in his company. But this man was pressurized by his boss to give a bribe in order to get a contract worth heaps of money. And this Christian man said, no, I'm not going to do it because it is not Right. And our boss was absolutely furious with this man because he didn't give a bribe to get the contract for his company. And he had to pay the price for that. 
He wasn't promoted after that. Can you see it? The challenges in the workplace for being a Christian, the challenges in your school, or wherever it may be. So when one suffers for doing what is good, what is right, we then identify ourselves with Christ. And when suffering comes in this form, I don't have the answer. It's a difficult one. And ultimately, each one of us has to make a choice and make a decision before God and live before God with that choice that we have made, right? And trusting God to take care of the situation. It is under his control. Now, Peter goes on to give us an example of real suffering by referring to the suffering of Jesus. It was God's will that his son should suffer and die. For example, here we have clearly in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for all the sin, the for sins, the righteous for the um, unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered. Once for our sins. The suffering was intense. Remember Jesus cried out at the cross. My God. My God. Why have you You know it? Say it. Why have you forsaken me? Because that was suffering. He endured the scorn. He endured the whips. He endured the mocking. He endured the slapping on his face. The crown of thorns. The nails that went through his hands. And was hanging there on the cross. And the suffering was intense. And yet it was God's will that his son suffers for your sins and for mine. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is the righteous one. That is, he's never made any mistake in his life. He is the sinless savior, the absolute perfect son of God, the righteous one. And he, my dear friends, without sin, took upon himself your sins and mine. And this is what Peter is saying here. And in fact, Paul brings this out in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. This is a fantastic text. Alright? If you've got a Bible, memorize this passage. Underline it because this is the crux of the gospel here in one sense. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God did. Made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And theologians call this concept the double imputation. Right? It's the double imputation that is Christ's sin, uh, sorry, our sin is placed upon Christ. Right? And his righteousness is placed upon us. The great exchange. How wonderful it is. All your sin, all my sin, has been taken upon by Jesus. And he has made us right before God. To ask you this morning, are you thankful for God, to, to God for that this morning? Do you know this, this amazing thing that God has done in your life? 
Do you know that all your sin, all my sin has been put upon Jesus? And when God looks at you this morning, and he looks at me this morning, what does he see? Hey? What does he see? Of course he'll see my sin. But what else more, friends? He will see me in the righteousness of his son Jesus. Do you see that? So that if God was to call you home right now, you will go to heaven because you are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Don't let anyone put that teaching down, friends. This is a most important aspect of our understanding of the gospel, of what God has done for you. And our identity is tied in with Jesus. You see, self-esteem is a massive issue, isn't it? Right? How do people look at themselves? How do you look at yourself? I mean, you talk to yourself, right? Don't you? I think we talk to ourselves a lot, right? may sound weird, but don't you talk to yourself when you're sitting down there in the veranda having a cup of coffee or a tea, and you're by yourself. Don't you kind of have this conversation that's going on between, going all over your brain, and thinking, no, I can't do this. No, yeah, I can't. I can. And we're kind of communicating all the time, right? Or, or am I kind of weird? Tell me. <laughs> I might be the only guy who's doing this. <laughs> right? We kind of talk to ourselves many times. What do you tell yourself? You see, you can say all kinds of things to yourself, right? You can, be, you can put yourself down. Oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm this and I'm that and I'm good for nothing. I'm useless. I don't feel I'm loved by God. I don't feel I'm loved by anybody. I feel down. I'll say this this morning. At such times, cling to this teaching here in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, and, and Peter's text here. That is that the righteousness of God has been imputed to you. And God says to you this morning, you are my child and I love you with an everlasting love. And no matter what happens, you will always be the apple of my eye because I have sent my son and he took your sin and his righteousness has been given to you. And so don't talk yourself down. Don't talk yourself too up either. Right? We need to be humble. But I'm talking about spiritual things here, friends. To give thanks to God. I was reading in preparation for this sermon about uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher in, in the UK. I had the privilege of uh, visiting the Metropolitan Tabernacle in, I think it's called Elephant Castle, right? Oh, Andrew is not in, so that's right. It's in Elephant Castle and uh, the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle in London. And when I went there, I... I was so determined to see where Spurgeon spent most of his time. So I went, they took me right down to the basement, and there was Spurgeon's office. And the bust of Spurgeon stands, he's, he's up there, the great big guy there. And Spurgeon spent so many hours in that room praying for his sermons. And you know what? There were times in Spurgeon's life when he was down and discouraged and depressed. He had to deal with criticisms from his peers, from his congregation members, 
the pressures of ministry, being up and leading God's people is always a challenge. And the pressures got to him. And uh, as the story goes, his wife began to notice that her husband was gradually feeling the weight of this depression that was coming upon him. And she wrote the text on the, on, on the ceiling, you know, don't be discouraged. She, she wrote from Matthew, uh, count it all a joy, you know, when, when you're persecuted, know that Jesus is with you. And, and all the Bible texts that she could remember, she wrote it on the ceiling, on, on a big piece of paper and pasted it on the ceiling. And so Spurgeon would get up, he would see that. <laughs> the Bible text every morning reminded him that he needs to get out of this because of what Christ has done. Did you see that? And as we, you and I, myself, as we go through life with all its challenges, with all its complexities, with all its ups and downs, we need to see, my dear friends, what, what Peter is saying here in this passage, for Christ also suffered for, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. See, he fulfilled God's demand of justice. Therefore, Jesus, by his death in the flesh, brings us to God. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? We can now enter into God's presence. He opens the door to the throne of God. And his death has served the redemptive purpose. It is done it is finished. It is complete. See, I think if they had Twitter at the time, when Jesus died and cried on the cross, it is finished, the message on Twitter would have been, it is finished. Praise God. That's what he's done. And now, let's keep moving on to the spirits. Right? And we come now to one of the most difficult passages here in the scriptures. I think it's one of the most difficult passages to interpret. It is also a difficult passage to translate. 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 and 20. Have a look at your Bibles with me on this one. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, it is only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism, now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, God bear with me here, these verses before us has been regarded by some scholars and theologians as perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. All right? Uh, Martin Luther said this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. And so that's it for me as well. Why? I mean, come on. Give me a break. I mean, if Luther is saying that, what can I say? <laughs> right? 
<laughs> I mean, look, uh, uh, let's come to it. Jesus made, Jesus made alive in the spirit. Now, there is, again, uh, lots of discussion about this word spirit. Was it, uh, was it the spirit? What is the spirit, right? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it his spirit? Who made him alive? My understanding, my humble understanding is that the reference here is to the Holy Spirit, right? That is that Jesus was made alive through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are others who may have a different view on that and respect that. And Peter says that Jesus preached to spirits in prison who were disobedient long ago. And then Peter makes reference to the days of Noah. What does this mean? How are we to unpack this? I'll give you quickly this morning. There are many interpretations. I just want to highlight three for us, okay? Just to give us a context here. So please, uh, let's study this word. That one understanding in the passage here is connected with the Apostles' Creed. Associated with the words in the Creed, he descended into hell. Remember the Apostles' Creed? He descended into hell. Right? And so it is said that Christ preached to the spirits in prison between his crucifixion, the day he died, and the resurrection. So that is, Christ preached to the spirits during that period of time. Another understanding is that Christ preached repentance through Noah. And that is that the pre-incarnate Jesus preached through Noah to the disobedient people at the time of Noah. According to this view then, Noah preached in the spirit of Christ. And the third broad view is this. Another understanding is that, that this refers to Christ's victory preaching following his resurrection leading up to his ascension. So we have three broad views here. And then we have exegetical questions on this passage. Let me highlight them. Where did Christ go? Who are the spirits in prison? Where is this prison? When did he go? When did this preaching take place? And why? What did he say? Now, friends, I'm not going to get involved with these things this morning uh, because it's complex. It's confusing, and we don't want to get too uh, confused on, on this matter either. All I can say is this, that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. I'm not certain where, when, how, and what Jesus said to the spirits in prison and who they are. I've spoken to... Uh, quite a few of my colleagues this past week on this passage all come up with simple solutions to me, not very helpful. Brother, just say some things that where we don't understand everything, right? We don't understand everything yet. All I can say is that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison when, where, how, what he said, I don't know. Right? And I want to keep it that way. And I think, I think I'm in good company because... Dr. Asis Proud says this. <laughs> this is a text that I'm open to correction and reproof. And I will be quick to ask the apostle when I see him in glory what he meant by these very enigmatic words. What else can I say? <laughs> I'll be asking Peter the same question. What did you mean, Peter, right? But for us this morning, Peter makes a reference to Noah. And we know the story in, in, in Genesis chapters uh, 6 to 8. Uh, he says that eight people were saved through water. 
the eighth saved was Noah, his wife, their three sons, uh, and their wives. Right? So eight. And then we read in, in 1 Peter, uh, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and so forth. Now, this passage is also quite difficult. It has caused a lot of stress in the church. It has had a great influence on theological debates in the in, in history of the church, and in particular, its understanding by the Roman Catholic Church. Let me say a few things this morning about the flood. The flood in the days of Noah is a type of God's judgment after a long period of self-restraint. God's patience was tested during the time of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He lived trusting God. Noah and his family were a minority and they were surrounded by hostile unbelievers. This is the case with Peter's readers as well, a minority living in a hostile world. Noah witnessed boldly by trusting God. He built the ark when everybody was laughing at him. The people around him may have thought he was crazy, but he trusted God. Noah waited patiently for God, trusting him and to repent and God was waiting for people to repent at the time of Noah. Peter's readers had to do the same thing. Noah knew God's judgment was coming upon the world. Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment will come on this world one day. The flood was sent by God. The entire earth was destroyed. Noah was saved with his family. Peter therefore encourages his readers. And even though they are a minority, that they too will certainly be saved by destruction. That's the big picture. All right? Eight were saved. What does it mean? By the waters. Peter makes the analogy and he connects the waters of the day of Noah and the water of baptism. Right? Now let's unpack this and please bear with me here. The waters of the flood were the means of God judging a sinful people. Allowing Noah and his family to escape from that judgment and begin a new life after the flood waters receded. The waters that buried the earth in judgment and death also lifted eight humans to safety and the animals in the ark. And Peter connects the saving of the eight by water to symbolize baptism. Water baptism represents a break from the old lifestyle to a new beginning, just like Noah and his family. Now, friends, that raises another question, right? And the question is this. What does it mean that we are saved by water? Ask the question, are we saved by baptism? Okay, that's good. Just do that. It's no, we are not saved by baptism, right? If you are going to be saved by baptism, that will be what we theologians call, and give you a lot of meat this morning, friends. It's called baptismal regeneration. It's a strong doctrinal teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. That is, uh, your baptism will save you. So if you sprinkle water on a person and they are baptized, that means you will get to heaven because you have been baptized. That is not the case in scriptures. It does not save us. Baptism does not save us. Let me get that very, very clear. And I want to illustrate the point this morning with two examples. When the Philippian jailer asked what was required of him to be saved, Paul did not mention baptism but simply said, Believe in the Lord and Jesus Christ. Remember the thief who died on the cross. Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise, though he was not 
baptized. So you can't be saved by baptism. If you are thinking this morning that just because you've been baptized, that you're a Christian, the answer is no. You need to be having a living relationship with whom? With God. Through whom? Through Jesus. So don't let you be deceived by thinking, oh yes, I was baptized as a young kid perhaps in a church, and now I'm a Christian because I was baptized. No, you've got to make your profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. We heard that from Rachel. She was baptized when she was three years. Where? In this church, right? In this place, somewhere around here. <laughs> and today she's professing her faith in Jesus. Right? So we can't be saved by baptism. So let's get that very clear. Why? Because, but if you're a Christian, then you should be baptized. Why? Because baptism was commanded by Jesus. Baptism is a sign of God's promise for all who believe in him. Baptism symbolizes our participation in Jesus, his burial and his resurrection. We died to our old way of life through the death of Jesus. We live a new life through the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism symbolizes the cleansing of our sins in the same way that water cleanses us from dirt in our bodies. Baptism signifies our adoption into the family of God. We are saved by Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus. And then uh, Peter says this as well, isn't it? We are to be encouraged this morning because Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Where? I mean, it's very simple, isn't it, for us to read this text. That I'm almost... Wanting to do a text uh, preaching next week, perhaps. Where, what is Jesus doing today or where is Jesus today? He's at the right hand. Angels, authorities, powers in submission. Ascended. And he will come back one day. You see, move, when you go for movies, I don't go for many movies, but when I do go, uh, you see, I, I'm always fascinated to see the coming soon things in the movies, right? Coming soon. I, I look forward to seeing what are the new movies that are coming out. And there are previews of films that are yet to be released. Let me say this. The resurrected Jesus Christ is the ultimate trailer of what is yet to come. The ultimate trailer of what is yet to come. My question to you this morning is, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. You're going through suffering this morning or a trial in your life or something that's not right with you. Be encouraged today. Because our Savior has done a great work for us. Has he not? Tell me. Yes. Right? And he's done a great work. And he's doing a great work now. At God's right hand. And he will do a great work when he returns. And I was saying to, to Rose this past week, you know, that one day a day will come. When there will be no more of these tears. No more pains, no more bombings, no more earthquakes, no more suffering, no more tears. Because Christ will make all things new. All things. Be encouraged this morning. I pray that the Spirit of God will encourage your heart today. And that you will commit your life to Jesus. The one who has preached to the Spirit to you, although we don't understand everything else. 
who has conquered the grave, who has risen from the grave, who has imputed to you righteousness, and who is seated at God's right hand. And all God's people said to this, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We have a great Savior who's done a great work. We may not understand the complexities of the passage this morning, but we know that Jesus rules. Help us to be encouraged. I pray your blessing upon everyone here this morning. Oh Lord, you know our hearts. Pray you lift us this morning that we may see the majesty and the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ in faith. Pray your blessing for every family present here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.